Hey, welcome. This is the Gentle Rebel podcast where we talk about navigating life's harsher edges with a spirit of compassionate creativity. I'm Andy Mortimer, songwriter and creativity coach, and I love exploring the power that gentleness has uh, to help us change our world from the inside out. Are you drawn to sad music? Do you enjoy being moved by films and books and art and other things like the natural world and deep conversations and stories that stir up emotion inside of you. We recently looked at this topic in one of our uh, Haven Sunday Cotter sessions um, and it's come up in a few discussions over the past um, year or two um, and we uh, recently saw that Susan Kane, the author of Quiet, The Power of Introverts in a World That Can't Stop Talking, uh, released a new book on this um, very subject. I mean, there, there must be something in the air at the moment. It's really, really interesting. Um, so we used her TED talk um, called The Power or The Hidden Power of Sad Songs and Rainy Days um, as a bit of a uh, as a an introduction to our exploration of the topic and, and we had sort of a, a 90 minute chat around some of the ideas that came up in that and then some of the things that were coming up in the conversation itself it was really fascinating to spend time just talking about the kind of art that moves us how this relates to ideas around um, yearning and longing and these other emotions that we might not always have words um, to uh, define them but they are recognisable in the way that we describe them. And also talking about what it might be that connects us with the metaphorical sad songs and rainy days of life. What is it that draws us to that kind of stuff? And so in this episode, I want to talk about the bittersweet, as Susan Cain describes it, and um, and why it might be that many sensitive people are drawn to these so-called sad songs, these deep conversations. It's kind of what might be described as kind of melancholic poignant um, experiences in our lives and I'm going to be sharing some of the um, some of the takeaways that I had from that discussion some of the things that we talked about uh, in the haven and, and hopefully weave it together with the aim of having some kind of practical things that we can um, that we can take away from this conversation as well by the end um, stuff concerning our uh, yeah like our gentleness practices our creativity uh, and the way that we um, interact with ourselves interact with others and uh, make a difference in the world as a result. I'd love you to gently just carry the spirit of a couple of questions with you as you as you listen to this episode. Um, questions like, what am I longing for? What is my yearning telling me? Don't try to answer these questions directly. Just allow them to, to float around you like a, a kind of, I don't know, a vapour sort of thing. Um, just sort of allow them to germinate inside and, and trust that by opening ourselves up to these sorts of questions we're going to invite the potential for more awareness into our into our sort of everyday being um you know and this is kind of gentleness in action i suppose as we talked about last week not trying to force it just allowing it to uh, speak in whatever way it needs to What does yearning feel like to you? I think we all know how it feels to yearn. We, we recognise that feeling. It's, it's an ache. It's a deep longing for something that we are aware is missing, but an inner knowing that the thing which is missing can never quite be acquired because it can never truly be defined or articulated. It's in that in-between place that we spoke about last week in the episode about gentleness being, um, always being an option. It's the space in between the notes where the glueiness of life allows the notes to stand out and be defined. It's the margins around the page that allow us to read the words. It's the space between the brushstrokes that give the image meaning and definition. You know, we know what yearning feels like. And when we think about it, we can see too how it's this thing that gives life meaning. But it's also this thing that we feel like oh, we've got to get rid of it because it's painful. And it's beautiful. It's what happens when we hold something dear to us that we want to last forever. And it's the sense that the thing that gives it its profound value is the very fact that it won't last forever. A few years ago, I was in South Australia. I travelled there to uh, stay with some really close friends of mine. And we went on a, a one night road trip um, during my stay 
to the Akara Flinders Ranges um, National Park. We stayed at a place called Wilpina Pound, um, which is essentially, uh, it's been described as like a natural amphitheatre of mountains. It's like this incredible uh, natural landscape. Um, and on the night we were there, the, the conditions were absolutely perfect for the most beautiful sunset I've ever witnessed in my life. I don't know if I'll ever see anything like it again. Um, I hope so. But yeah, it was like there, there were layers of cloud that created this sort of visual drama on the horizon as the sun was descending below it. And it was just this profoundly amazing thing. Um, I remember feeling this bizarre mix of emotions as I was witnessing that moment. It was this profound appreciation of beauty, a deep, expansive kind of, I don't know, I can only describe it as love, I suppose, a love thing inside of me. Um, Like everything was completely right with the world, that this world, this life, it's all a gift of obscene beauty. Um, And this was sort of held or juxtaposed, I guess, with a sense of foreboding loss that was also there. It's a sweeping shadow of grief was lingering as I, I wanted to stay in this moment forever. I was like, ah, this is, I just want to consume it. I want to hold it forever. I want to capture it on camera um, as it is, as it feels, which was impossible. And I also knew that it was about to be lost forever. And I, I kind of had this realization that, well, maybe it's because of the fleetingness of it. Maybe it's because it's about to be lost that this matters so much. Maybe that's what gives it its definition, its significance. The very fact that the sun would soon disappear below the horizon was what gave that moment its sense of deep and expansive beauty. And I think that's what yearning feels like. It's at the very core of life. It inspires us. It haunts us. It causes unfathomable pain and helps us appreciate obscene levels of beauty. It gives rise to meaning and shows us what truly matters to us. It can bring a healthy sense of urgency or appreciation to the things that we might otherwise be tempted to take for granted. You know, relationships and people and seasons of life, um, holidays, vacations, jobs, creative projects, uh, whatever it might be. And this, I think, is the bittersweet that Susan Cain talks about. The melancholy appreciates life's meaning by uh, seeing the whole in it both the whole and the whole, you know, the W-H-O-L-E, the whole of it and the whole. It's the gap that, that, that gives rise to meaning. It's in the bitter that the sweet makes sense. And these are not two sides of a coin, but rather uh, an interweaving web that belongs together. Things are precious because they are fragile. When I was a kid, I fell in love with the short animated Christmas film, The Snowman. I don't know if you've come across it. I've first watched it when I, I think I was about five or six. I, I can't remember exactly, but it destroyed me <laughs> when I watched it. It completely broke my heart. I finished it in floods of tears. Um, I think my parents were like, well, what have we done? Um, and yeah, I, in case you haven't come across it, I'm not sure how widely it's traveled outside the UK. It's basically this story of a, a little boy called James wakes up one day, discovers that overnight it's been snowing, the garden's covered in snow, so he gets to work building a snowman and spends all day building this thing and, and putting it together. It's like this amazing thing. Like, you know, very, as a kid, when you see a snowman built like that, um, you think that it's kind of possible and, and simple, but it's not, especially on your own. Um, but anyway, yeah, he, he wakes up in the middle of the night after after this day of building uh, looks out the window, check on his creation. Yeah, it's still there. And as the, the clock strikes midnight, the snowman comes to life. Um, and so then the two of them just embark on this. I, I guess it's like a night of uh, frivolity and play and adventure. Um, first with James showing the snowman around the house, introducing him to, to all the kind of weird human things that are collected in, in a house and in the garage and all that s- stuff. And then the snowman takes James on an adventure to a snowy forest where all the other snow people are gathered um, somewhere beyond northern Norway. Um, and they meet Father Christmas there as well, who, who presents James with a, with a gift of a scarf, um, which signifies the next morning, because he has it, that this was not simply a dream. Um, and then when he wakes up, James goes running out to um to go and i guess see his snowman and then the the film ends with this sort of big pan out from the pile of clothes and the fruit and coal that is sat on a small lump of melted snow 
where the snowman had stood the day before. Um, and then it's just this, this heartbreaking moment where he's just stood there in this, uh, massive field of, uh, of nothingness of white expanse with his scarf. Um, as I say, I was in floods of tears the first time I watched it. Um, but the following Christmas, I really wanted to watch it again. And I had remembered how it felt. I hadn't forgotten the pain of that ending. And yet something in me longed to watch it again. You know, like now, even now I'm like, it's a perfect piece of film. It, it moves me every single time. I think it captures the essence of life's in-betweenness so beautifully from the creative flow that James experiences as he's making the snowman. You know, this sense of like he rushes in, um, when he has to have his meals and he's straight back out there. You know, I've experienced that uh, many, many times in creative flow. And then also the ex- excited desire when he wakes up in the middle of the night just to sort of peek out the window and check his thing. It's like, you know, that feeling if you've ever created something that either you're really, really proud of or you're in the middle of and you're, you're kind of thinking about it a lot. You just sort of, yeah, I need to look at it or with a, with music, I need to just have a listen. Um, and then this kind of deep sorrow that is experienced at the end when the snowman is gone. It's, it's a great metaphor on so many levels for creativity and for life itself, for all things that bring us beauty and meaning. There is an intertwined bitter sweetness that comes from a world where change is constant, where things move on, where things are lost. They made a sequel to the snowman in in 2012 which i was i was really looking forward to seeing but i felt completely missed i don't know the core essence of what made the original work so well it's called the snowman and the snow dog and in the parallel meeting between the boy and father christmas father christmas gives him a magical dog collar that he can put on the snow dog um, that he built alongside the snowman an extra character in this one um, and this magical collar brings the snow dog to life. So at the end, although the snowman melts and he's gone forever, you have that sort of element. He's left with what is now a real life dog. And that's kind of a permanent fixture for as long as he'll be a permanent fixture in that family. Um, and there are other things in the film that I just I felt kind of just missed the mark. It didn't quite ha- capture that essence that is in that original but. Um, and I, I, I will defend that because uh, I, I think it's more than just me being nostalgic for the original. Um, but I think that was the ultimate thing that missed them up because it removes the yearning from the equation. You know, it almost pacifies with a sugar coating. It's as if the filmmakers almost couldn't bring themselves to go into the heart of that painful loss, the painful yearning, the painful longing, the beauty that was so perfectly illustrated in the original. And all of a sudden something happens that almost disconnects us as an audience and confronts us with an opportunity to escape from reality. Um, with, and it, Of course, that's fine if that's what you want to do. But in the context of this particular story, it just felt like, oh, have they sort of bottled it a little bit, lost the, lost the courage in making those decisions? Um, and I can imagine it now, you know, from conversations I've had with people where it's like, you know, people, people don't want a sad ending. People want a happy ending. The snowman's really, that original's really sad. We want to kind of create something uplifting. Um, and and this kind of takes us on to conversations around how we describe art, um, which like is, is really where I want to um, take this episode because it's really fascinating. This was something that we spent time talking about in The Haven. The use of words like sad and happy to describe music. It's very simplistic words um, to describe very complex emotions um, you know walking in the air is the is the kind of the theme song so to speak from the original snowman and i think it's, it's a good example of what would probably be described as a sad song um you know it's in a minor key it's a very stirring quality to it it's melancholic it's emotive um lyrically it's it's really happy it's kind of got an element of delight to it it's, it's magical it's hopeful um, and it sits perfectly in the film. And what, I, I guess once you know what's going to happen, you know how this ends. It's a great example of, of yearning because it's, it kind of brings this real sense of almost urgency to the moment of play, to the moment of adventure. Um, and so that contentment, that adventure, that excitement is underpinned by the knowledge that, you know, this is not going to last forever. You know, this is 
This is a moment that will be lost soon. It's a one night event. This time tomorrow, this will just be, it'll be nothing more than a, a story and a memory to cherish. So why do we love sad music? I mean, regardless of a song's context, I find it really interesting how we categorise art in this, in this simplistic way. And I'm really interested in the connection that many of us have to the proverbial sad songs and rainy days. You know, Susan Cain describes bittersweet as a tendency um, towards states of longing, poignancy and sorrow. It's an acute awareness of passing time and a curiously piercing joy at the beauty of the world. I love that description. And as I say, from our conversation in the Haven, a few of us shared um, the fact we have the, the same relationship with, the, with poignant and emotive art. You know, I don't know how you feel as you, you're hearing me describe this kind of stuff. Like, is this something that you really resonate with, connect with or not? Um, it, it, and it's not necessarily, it's not, not that we kind of necessarily go looking for that kind of thing. But when when it comes, we get encapsulated by it. When it finds us, it kind of draws us in and makes us uh, sit up and take note and potentially, in my case, disappear down rabbit holes massively. Um, it might be hearing a song, seeing a movie, reading a poem, it might be an experience of the natural world or seeing an interaction between people. Pretty much anything that, I guess, just connects us to the bittersweet whole that brings an appreciation for this moment in time. It's interesting that um, Susan Cain says also there's a parallel between high sensitivity and the kind of bittersweet melancholy, but not so far in the research that's been done. Um, there hasn't been a, a, a link between introversion and the bittersweet melancholy. There's something in the deep sensory processing and experience of the world that underpins this draw perhaps. It's funny because, you know, it's, I, I find it really difficult to imagine not feeling this pull to the bittersweet. It pulls me in when I encounter other people's work and it speaks through me in my own music, in my own work. I mean, even in this, like as I'm talking about this, I'm feeling it right now. I've said many times that I can't write happy songs. I've wished on many occasions that I could create happy music. You know, I've had conversations with people like, why can't, why can't you write a happy song? I'm like, I don't, I don't know. And I've used that, those words happy and sad there um, to describe what I do. I've come to realise that the, the, the past few years, we've got a complete failure of language. We don't have the vocabulary to describe this kind of thing, the, the actual essence, the depth of what we're trying to talk about. We don't have the words to describe what this is. And these terms like bittersweet and yearning and longing and poignant and moving they help us get some way towards what we're referring to in the, in the essence of this kind of creative output. But we still often trip ourselves up by thinking of things in binary terms like happy and sad. There's, there's often huge amounts of hope in these soundscapes, the soundscapes we might describe as sad. They might allow our deep feelings to attach to something tangible. And I think one example uh, is uh, the well kind of described by Susan Cain at the start of her TED talk and, and in her book. We talked about this in in, the, in our Haven conversations, the cellist of Sarajevo. Um, and so I'll just read out that that story or bits of it. So the strains of Albanoni's Adagio in G minor fill the pedestrian street outside a bombed out bakery. All around him, the rifles fire, the shelling booms, the machine guns crackle. Vedran Smailovich keeps on playing. He'll do this for 22 days, one day for each person killed at the bakery. Somehow, the bullets will never touch him. This is a city built in a valley, ringed by mountains from which snipers aim at starving citizens in search of bread. Some people wait for hours to cross the street, then dart across like hunted deer. But here's a man, sitting still in an open square, dressed in concert finery, as if he has all the time in the world. Smailovich will inspire other musicians to take to the streets with their own instruments. They don't play martial music, to rouse the troops against the snipers, or pop tunes to lift the people's spirits. They play the Albanoni. 
The destroyers attack with guns and bombs, and the musicians respond with the most bittersweet music they know. We're not combatants, call the violinists. We're not victims either, add the violas. We're just humans, sing the cellos. Just humans. Flawed and beautiful and aching for love. How does this image feel to you? Right now, as I record this and the war rages in Ukraine, it feels very close to our hearts. We had an amazing conversation about our capacity to engage with stories like this. You know, for some, it's just too much. And we explored the difference between um, kind of, I guess, seeing the pure lament versus seeing the presence of beauty and hope on the site of trauma and pain. This is for sure a combination of these things. You know, the lament holding vigil for the 22 people killed in the bakery bombing, but also an act that brings the non-violence of music to the place of violence, to the place of grief, to bring beauty to the darkness and to gently, softly, courageously declare that some things can't be destroyed by the violence in this moment, in the systems of oppression and in the demonstrations of power that try to keep the human spirit in tatters among the debris. These stories might feel on the surface really, really just full of sadness. And of course they are, but the music gives a tangible expression to the emotions that we're already feeling. And I think there's an important thing to think about here that the music isn't creating the feeling. It's actually giving our feelings somewhere to um, pour themselves, to align to, to, to attach to. There's an interesting uh, case in point um, similar to this, which is REM's song Everybody Hurts, which was recently voted the saddest song of all time earlier this year in 2022. Um, as I'm recording this, it was a poll of 2000 music lovers, not sure exactly who, but it was referred to as the ultimate tearjerker in the newspapers um, reporting this story. And I kind of wonder why this is. It kind of really surprises me. Um, I've had a few conversations about this. You know, why would this possibly be referred to as the saddest song of all time? When your day is long and the night, the night is yours alone, when you're sure you've had enough of this life, well, hang on. Don't let yourself go because everybody cries. Everybody hurts sometimes. Sometimes everything is wrong. Yeah. I don't know how you feel about it. They're not sad lyrics. The song, is, it's not like in a minor key, which is one of the contributing factors to so-called sad songs as well. It's, it's more like a lullaby. It's a reassuring, comforting, compassionate, like just, I don't know, a hug of sound. It, it's compassionate in the sense that it speaks a universal truth that we all recognize. It sees us. Yeah, every, everybody hurts. Um, isn't that interesting that we consider being confronted with something that speaks to our uh, universal humanness in this way? We call that sad. The feeling people get listening to it, I don't think it's sadness. I think it's far more deep than that. It's moving, it's emotional. Yes, it jerks tears, but not necessarily because it's sad. Maybe because it's safe. Maybe it sees us, it speaks to the experience of life, the fact that life feels hard at times, and that is a universalizing uh, truth. You know, in the song it says, if you feel like you're alone, no, 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 you're not alone. And so this poll found that almost half, so 48% of adults, believe a tune can have a huge impact on their mood. 36% tune into sad songs when they're feeling nostalgic and one in four, 24% will have them on rotation following a breakup. And almost half claim sad songs can brighten up their mood. Um, So I think we need a new word for sad songs because people aren't talking about sad songs here. They're mistaking songs that move them and bring them into contact with their emotions uh, with evoking sadness. They're stirring, they're evocative, they're meaningful, they're true, they're real, they're poignant. What if these songs don't make us feel things, they just allow us to feel the things that we otherwise might push down and keep at bay? The things that so-called happy songs 
just get nowhere near. I'd love to know if you have any words to describe these kinds of songs or this kind of um, art in general. You know, it's the same with films. Many times I've heard movies described as sad when actually they're anything but sad. It's usually because they're, they're real. They have something really human at the core of them. They're not escapism. They are compassionate. They're, they're kind of gentle with us as human beings. They see us. They hold us. They carry something that means we feel recognised in our humanness in some way. And we just, we, we just don't have the vocabulary to truly describe our experience in the realm of the bittersweet, the real, the melancholic yearning that underpins what's really at the heart of the joy of life. Over the years, I've heard a lot of people describe feeling a sense of homesickness for somewhere that doesn't exist or somewhere that they've um, never been. There's just this sense of like, I'm not where, I'm not home. Um, And often this is tied to a sense of feeling like they must belong to maybe a different era or, you know, born in the wrong, the wrong century or the wrong decade or maybe in a parallel universe. But rather than making us weird to feel this way, what if actually this we found a way to describe a feeling that actually makes us completely human, completely normal? What if this is the drive that underpins all kinds of behaviours in other people? And when you're unaware of it, it turns out into a, like a, a drive to fit in, to belong, to find wholeness and completeness in things like the perfect job or uh, the perfect relationship, home having the perfect things, uh, doing hobbies, fashions, whatever it is, like finding this, the one that's going to make you whole and complete. Um, the homesickness is a yearning. It's underpinned by what Susan Cain describes when she says, you know, our oldest problem is the pain of separation. Our deepest dream is the desire for reunion. And she writes in the book that at the heart of many of our greatest and longest standing traditions is this pain of separation, the longing for reunion, and occasionally the transcendent achievement of it. But separation from what exactly? From our soulmates, the location of whom is one of our great life's tasks, the platonic tradition suggests. From the womb, if you take a psychoanalytic view, from comfort in our own skin, usually because of some past trauma or hurt we're struggling to heal, Or perhaps all of these are just metaphors for or different expressions of separation from the divine. Separation, longing and reunion are the beating heart of most religions. We long for Eden, for Zion, for Mecca. And we long for the beloved, which is the beautiful way the Sufis refer to God. So it's this sense that life is this strange state of exile where we're empathetically connected within this state sense of homesickness for a place we can't describe somewhere that can't be articulated or truly defined and while it might sometimes feel like we're the only one feeling this honestly you can see it everywhere when you start to look and it underpins some of the most wonderful human accomplishments and discoveries and artistic creations it what it's what sort of drives us in so much of our amazing you know the amazing things that we do as well as some of the most dreadful examples of human behavior you know when people are unable to hold this stuff in in healthy creative universal ways it becomes those uh, immortality projects the desire the drive to find meaning through destruction through control through violence there are three concepts that i'm reminded of when thinking about this idea of of homesickness and yearning for somewhere that doesn't exist. The first two words are from the Dictionary of Obscure Sorrows. Um, they're Anamoya and Velikor. Um So Anamoya is um, nostalgia for a time you've never known. Imagine stepping through the frame into a sepia-tinted haze where you could sit on the side of the road and watch the locals passing by who lived and died before any of us arrived here, who sleep in some of the same houses we do who look up at the same moon, who breathe the same air, feel the same blood in their veins and live in a completely different world. And Velikor, the strange wistfulness of used bookstores, which are somehow infused with the passage of time, 
filled with thousands of old books you'll never have time to read, each of which is itself locked in its own era, bound and dated and papered over like an old room the author abandoned years ago, a hidden annex littered with thoughts just left as they were on the day they were captured. <laughs> what a description. I get this feeling in all kinds of places, especially empty places, imagining and even feeling the life that has been kind of lived in this space. There's an amazing scene in the documentary Hema by Icelandic band Sigaross, and they go into an old abandoned fish processing building. And there's a, a real ghostly sense in the space as they enter it. It's a bit like scenes from places where, you know, life was suddenly disrupted. People had to sort of flee mid-sentence, drop what they were doing and, and just get out of there, where things have not been properly completed, properly concluded. It would seem that this uh, processing plant was operational one day and then maybe suddenly without notice the whole thing shut down and uh, things have just sort of rotted over the years. And so Sigaros go into this space and they perform um, and they bring music, they bring life, they bring creative spirit into that place. They breathe new life into a dormant moment, into a dormant place. And just for, for that moment, infusing the air with life, with the creative spirit, with a sense of new history. And it's a really profoundly moving scene. Something in the music as well that just calls out from the, the depths of yearning in ways that just fit that space, that moment perfectly. And then the third concept um, that kind of my, my mind came to is, is that of mono no aware. And this, this idea entered our bittersweetness discussion um, in the Haven as well. And this is what culturetrip.com um, says to, to kind of describe it or attempt to describe it. I mean, it starts by saying often considered to be untranslatable. Mono no aware refers to the bittersweet realization of the ephemeral nature of all things. It's the awareness that everything in existence is temporary, the fleetingness of youth, the fading of romance, the changing of seasons are not to be mourned but cherished and appreciated in their impermanence. For that is where their beauty comes from. Mono no aware translates literally to the pathos of things. In addition to pathos, aware can also be um, translated as sorrow, misery or sensitivity, while mono refers to things. Well, there is a sense of melancholy associated with mono no aware. It's not meant to be a general sadness, but rather a deeply felt emotion that washes over the feeler as he or she realises that everything is transient and of its own time and place. It's also been referred to as the ah-ness of life. Again, what I find uh, interesting is that these ideas are, are giving us words and phrases to describe something that we know, <laughs> like we recognise that, we know what that's describing. Um, it's like art, they, ca they connect with something that we feel but maybe struggle to articulate, something that we've never been able to fully even grasp in any way, even attempted to articulate, because we, we don't know it's there until we are made aware that it's there. Uh, we don't know what to do with that feeling. And rather than feeling kind of bleaked out by this stuff, we can actually work with it. We can get comfortable with the artness of life, with the yearning, with the longing. We can learn to roll with it in ways that turn the pain of longing into our creative offering which we're going to get to shortly, because there's, that's really what we're aiming to do, to bring the yearning, to bring the longing, to bring the ephemeral nature of life and the gap between things to a place where we can find meaning and purpose for our lives through that stuff, not despite it, and not in an attempt to eradicate the gap. It's the gap that matters. I find it really interesting to consider how, as humans, we often sabotage our own enjoyment of things, often with the help of um, people and businesses that think they're going to solve our problems by taking away obstacles. Um, but actually, it's often the obstacles that create the joy itself. It's the obstacle that gives the sense of accomplishment to things. Um, you know, we've seen a resurgence, haven't we, over the uh, I don't know, past decade or so of, of vinyl as a good example, you know, when you can access all music um, at pretty good quality um, at the end, like on your phone um, 
we we have this kind of resurgence of people putting obstacles in the way of listening to music by bringing back vinyl um and you know putting obstacles in the way when it comes to eating and making coffee and all of these things that you know often hipstery sort of things um but there's something really significant about that that actually it's the obstacle that creates the joy it's the obstacle that creates the meaning um susan gain says that the world is scared of the dark she points to the message of modern culture that tells us to, to smile to get over it to move on but if we pause to think for a moment, we realise that longing sits at the heart of all our favourite literature. It's the core of every religion. It's because of longing that we play moonlight sonatas and build rockets to Mars. And I think it's because of longing that we do these other everyday things where we put these, these obstacles in the way of things that could be really simple, things that we've presented with um, like easy solutions for by companies um, and actually, there's something just really fascinating about that tendency that we might have then to to go to go full circle to come back to a place where no, I want to work for that. I want to put effort into that. I want to feel like I'm getting rewarded for something that could be done very, very simply. Um, it's the kind of the same mentality as like you know t- talked before about um, the the what I love about circular walks. And how it's all about the walk itself. It's about what happens between leaving where you are and getting back to where you are. Like the the simple thing to do would be to not leave where you are because you're ultimately aiming to get back to where you where you already are. But that that's absurd, and we know that's absurd. Um, but like, there's there's so much in that that we can sort of extrapolate and use in the way that we build our lives. Like, are we just trying to get? It's, it's like you know the idea of a dance or a song are you is the point of a of a dance to get to the end of it is the point of a song to get to the end of it no of course it's not um so what is the jo- where's the joy in that where is the um the meaning in that and so in the context of that the the world being scared of the dark um and that message to to smile to get over it to move on like we're essentially neglecting our shadow parts but these are not simply the things that we want to embrace if we want to take better care of ourselves. They're actually a fundamental part of enjoyment itself. As we've been looking at, without the bitter, there is no sweet. There's just numbness, disconnection, efficiency, productivity. I I think all of these things are are in some ways connected as well. And one of my favourite podcasts, Why Theory, um, Ryan and Todd were talking about streaming and how the way that we consume and engage with digital media has evolved over the years and, and where it might be heading next. Um, and when Netflix started, they were the champions of kind of binge watching box sets without adverts, where the release of TV series would essentially just happen in one dump and you could watch the whole thing in one go, which is different to what they described as kind of linear programming um, that used to happen on TV, where you'd um, be sort of given, you'd, you'd have the TV schedule that's what you'd be stuck with. Um, and then you'd have to wait for the next episode um, to, to drop the following week, week on week scheduling. Um, and so we were kind of fed this idea that this is going to make life amazing. You can access everything that you want in one go. This is what you want, isn't it? Like this is perfect. Um, but they suggest on the podcast that one of the things that's gone unappreciated is the fact that the enjoyment of TV comes because of the gap between the episodes it's the gap that that brings the enjoyment it's the not having access to the next episode until next week that actually makes us enjoy the tv show um it makes for that deeply satisfying sense of dissatisfaction and so companies um have been kind of returning to this model um over the past couple of years dropping one or two episodes per week rather than the whole series um or they'll I think they're starting to sort of drop maybe half of a series and then a couple of months later, the, the next half. I'm sure this is mainly driven by a desire to sort of retain subscribers because if a series takes 12 weeks to, to be released, um, someone's going to stay on for, for, 12, for th- uh, three months rather than watching it all in one weekend and then sort of abandoning ship and going somewhere else. And so, you know, with an increasingly saturated market streaming services, it's likely that people would be resuming and pausing subscriptions as and when there's something like interesting to them to watch but this is um this this means you have to sort of stick around 
to see the entire series. But actually, in the process, this is serving to bring back an element of enjoyment that I think we, we've maybe not fully appreciated um, in the way that we've uh, consumed TV. I remember in 2017 when Twin Peaks The Return uh, was released. It's the most painfully beautiful experience, you know, as being an enormous fan of Twin Peaks. I was so excited. But it's like, it was like 16 weeks or so that it came out um, week after week on, on a Monday. One episode a week, that was it. Um, so like in between that, I would take to listening to podcasts um, that were reviewing and analysing and speculating about, you know, where's this going? What's going on? We don't know anything about this. Um, who are these characters? What What's this all about? There was this kind of beautiful pain in the longing to know what happens next, a longing to get to it, a wonderful yearning for completion, while actually deeply enjoying the rich experience of not knowing, you know, and it, it might not, you might not even think about it as enjoyment because it's so painful, but it's that that brings the the deep enjoyment to that situation to that experience it's the same feeling of being partway through a murder mystery you know you're desperate to know like who who done it um and there's great joy in that time where you're guessing you're trying to figure it out you're trying to work it out for yourself like who who do you think's done it how do you think they've done it um and it feels like you really really need to know like everything everything kind of hangs on this this need to know but when you do find out it's kind of a sense of grief a sense of disappointment just like discovering how a a magic trick is done you know it kills you it kills you not to know as you look closely you analyze everything the magician's doing you're theorizing what's going on i absolutely must know how this is done um and then when you find out it's like oh finding out the truth becomes a huge disappointment because the joy is in the not knowing the joy is in the not having that knowledge the enjoyment is in the gap whether that's a gap in your knowledge or understanding or a gap between tastes. You know, if you have infinite access to your favorite food and you knew it's not going to, you know, cause me any harm to just eat this all the time, you're probably going to stop enjoying it. We think we want to win the lottery, but really it's the not winning that gives us a deep kick of enjoyment. Dreaming and imagining what would happen if we did. It's the yearning that brings the meaning to life. Bittersweet melancholy is about knowing that the thing we think will change everything will only change something. (laughs) It might bring us a moment of satisfaction. You know, winning the lottery will make a difference, obviously, but it won't take away the longing forever, the yearning. That just shifts. It moves to something else. And we don't want it to take that away because it's the longing that drives us. It's the longing, it's the yearning that gives us a sense of structure and a sense of purpose to the things that matter to us. If we had everything we ever longed for, life would be awful. We want to keep the dreams alive, to understand that our satisfaction comes through our dissatisfaction, to finish the episode of the TV show and just sit with the feeling that I really, really want to watch another one. But I can hold on to the excitement that comes from waiting. I remember talking with a, um, or about a colleague um, I worked with years and years and years ago who used to be obsessed with holidays, going on holidays. She'd always had one booked. Um, she'd, got, she'd get back from one vacation and she'd either be planning the next one or she'd have already booked it. Um, and I used to feel like, I, I used to talk about this, like, oh, it's really sad, you know, you're constantly living for, for the future and all of this. Um, and... And feeling like the, that must there must be an emptiness in in her life. Um, it's like a grand scale living for the weekend sort of approach. But actually, when I look back on it now, I realise she had a really deep sense of enjoyment in that, and her enjoyment was fully baked into this yearning because she was always really happy about it. She was really excited almost all the time, um, and she found great satisfaction in, in not having, of being able to dream and plan and, you know, where am I going to go, what am I going to do, and th- this desire for the thing that she didn't have, she had a really good relationship with it, and I, it was, I was projecting something onto her, I was, I was being like, ah, oh, poor, poor thing, um, not seeing, I wasn't seeing something that she couldn't see about herself, like in, in the sense of like, um, she was really, really miserable. Like she wasn't at all. Uh, she was really satisfied with that approach of being. And, and like, I really, when I look back on it, I'm like, oh, that's really interesting. 
you know, she loved her holidays. She was always happy about them when she got back as well. She'd be excited to talk about what she's done, where she's been. She wasn't in this sense of deep grief about, oh, that's gone. So therefore I have to fill that hole by booking another one. It was just this, this rolling sense of, um, I don't know, joy and excitement. Maybe she had a healthy relationship with, uh, with what Susan Cain um, kind of uh, cites C.S. Lewis as describing the inconsolable longing for we know not what. I love that phrase, the inconsolable longing for we know not what. It's a, a longing that can't be met and we don't know what we're longing for. If we don't really want to know how the magic trick is done or who the murderer is and we won't find joy in watching another episode or eating a second tub of ice cream, what are we really longing for? This is a, an interesting question for us to ponder. In the TED Talk, Susan Cain talks about finding the answer to her own question of longing. After being in a, uh, I think, brief relationship with a musician onto whom she, it sounds like she kind of pinned her sense of longing, um, she, she found a release from that. He was a, he was a poet and a performer, um, which from her description had something that, that she really longed for. And eventually she owned the longing for herself. She turned it into a desire to be a writer. Um, and this was really confirmed as she um, then met her now husband and, and they sort of began their relationship. And she was able to begin her own journey, realizing her inner longing through her own creative expression. And this um, is a really interesting distinction to make when we think about how we channel our longing. You know, do we long for um, for external th- objects, for people, for events, for experiences over which we have no true control, hoping that by being associated with those things, we might find our yearning fulfilled? Or do we know what the longing is telling us about what truly matters to us, about the direction that we move, about the things that we um, that we apply ourselves to or commit ourselves to? Is it expanding who we are, opening up our experience of life, allowing us to become more of ourselves, to see the beauty in things, to hold that the gap between things with gentleness and reverence? Or are we holding on to something else? Are we pinning our longing onto something else, hoping that it will fulfill us if we get enough of it? or we have the right version of it, or whatever. What we really want isn't the answer. It's not to consume something or to be with someone. It's to experience life as ourselves, to create, to be inspired, to grow, to connect, to play, to discover, and to desire from a place of deep authenticity. I wonder if Susan's longing to be a writer symbolises some even deeper longing, maybe a longing to... um, have a voice to express herself creatively, to be free to explore the world through imagination and play, whatever it might be. And in this sense, we can work in partnership with our longings in different ways. It's not about finding our one true purpose or calling. It's about identifying where the voice of longing speaks when we engage with the world. This is certainly part of what we can hear when we are aware of how we engage with the bitter sweetness of things around us. What moves us? What about it moves us? What is this telling us about ourselves? There are so many questions that we can start to introduce into our lives that can help us build a healthy and happy relationship with our longing. You know, we're not after answers. We're not after the proverbial uh, mystery being solved about who the murderer is. That's not what this is about. These questions are not about that. We are after more interesting and meaningful questions to keep the mystery alive, to keep the yearning burning. So I want to finish up by reflecting on two lines that Susan Cain says in the book. First, uh, whatever pain you can't get rid of, make it your creative offering. And secondly, creativity has the power to look pain in the eye and turn it into something else. Both of these gave rise to a really interesting discussion uh, in our in our Haven conversation about what it means for there to be pain that you can't get rid of and whether creativity becomes a way to get rid of that pain or it actually gives somewhere for us to place the residual pain of life's trauma, like the trauma of life itself. Um, 
And I like this latter explanation because once again, it universalizes the experience of humanity as one of experiencing pain by virtue of the fact that we're alive. There's an essence of that for all of us. This idea that our creative offering comes from the pain we can't get rid of makes me think of people who turn their deepest grief into something bigger than themselves. It's the drive to start a trust in the name of someone who dies, to research the cause of their death and support other people going through the same thing. It's the book that's written that shares the story of a personal struggle. It's the everyday connection that we make through the pain of life itself. It's our opportunity to turn the ineradicable pain into something creative, something meaningful. I remember in my six years working as an undertaker, one of the earliest experiences was on a call out. Um, and the, the person that I was working with reassured the bereaved family with the words, um, you're never going to get over this, but you will come to terms with it. And these words have stayed with me. They speak to a lot of this stuff because I think that we sometimes believe the aim is to be without the pain of loss, is to get over the things that actually, the, the pain that we can't get rid of. The pain that we can't get rid of is a really important part of our story. We believe that healing is to eradicate the, scar the scars of our wounds, but in actual fact, healing is to see our scars as the stories that we carry with us, the stories that connect us with one another. We think we're waiting for the pain of loss to clear away or disappear. This might even be a necessary belief that drives us for a while in our grief. But what we discover eventually is that we transcend grief only when we realise how connected we are with all hu other humans who struggle to transcend theirs. While we're waiting, our broken hearts can help to connect us. Our broken hearts are what connects us. It's that gap again. That's the meeting point. I've shared the, the Buddhist parable of the mustard seed a few times over the years and uh, I was interested to see Susan Cain um, cite it in, in the book as well. Um, and yeah, so this is, this is from Bittersweet. In the story, a woman loses her only child. Grief-stricken, she staggers across the town, her son's corpse in her arms, searching for a doctor or sage who can bring him back to life. Finally, she meets the Buddha. He tells her that he, her wish will be granted. All she has to do is bring him a mustard seed. But just one thing, he adds, the seed must come from a household where no one has ever died, where they've never known loss or grief. The bereaved mother is thrilled, sets off on her quest, knocks on one door after another, and soon learns the lesson that loss is part of life. No household is free of it. The woman buries her son and becomes a nun and enlightened. Now, <laughs> Um, I love this story, but I think this particular telling of it misses one of the absolute key takeaways that I think is really important, which is what happens on the journey. Like it almost makes the becoming a nun and enlightened bit like the point, but actually it's not about becoming enlightened in the sense of gaining some knowledge or understanding about how things are. It's about what happens behind those doors of every house that gets knocked on. It's about connecting with every one of those people listening to their stories, sharing that grief. It's about what happens between people rather than what happens in our minds about what we know about people. It's not that she's come away with, without a mustard seed. That's not the point. It's what happens while that mustard seed is not there. It's about connecting with those people in each house. That's where the healing comes. It doesn't eradicate the pain. It's not about finding out some knowledge, but it's about becoming integrated into the story of humanity itself. It's about being part of that and really experiencing that sense of togetherness in our loneliness, togetherness in our grief, the universalization of pain, of longing, of yearning. And this is where our life's work is born. By realizing our place in the deeper story, it might come from things that happen to us maybe losing a loved one or some kind of uh, traumatic experience that we've been through. It might come from our relationship with the world around us, maybe the art that we're drawn towards, the things that speak to us, the questions that just won't seem to leave us alone, the things we keep noticing everywhere around us. Our life's work begins to grow once we identify where we've been using surrogates for our longing. Maybe we've been relying on objects outside of ourselves 
pinning it into um, identity labels or relationships with particular type of person. Interests that say something about who we want everybody to believe we are, the things we consume, the fashions we follow, and so on. What do these things tell us about the longing beneath them? And this is not an easy question to answer. It's not, you're not going to sort of find an immediate um, answer or, or have, it, have it all laid out before you in one go. It's a question to carry with us as we grow our awareness, as we grow our relationship with ourselves. You know, what do we notice is speaking to us? What are we noticing about what we're noticing? What do our favourite songs allow us to feel? What do our interests allow us to experience? What do our dreams allow us to hope for? What do they give language to that maybe we've never been able to articulate in ourselves? And how might we begin to take ownership of those longings? I'm going to leave it there for this episode. So thank you so much. For joining me today, I, I, I absolutely love talking about this stuff. It's like really fascinating to me. Um, I'm going to go and record the extended play um, over on Patreon now, where I'm going to, I think, talk a little bit more about my own music and my relationship with writing um, so-called sad songs and that struggle that I have to write happy songs. You know, as a songwriter, how has this become a bit of a story I carry with me that's been reinforced by certain experiences performing in context that really don't suit my vibe or the vibe of the music that I create and, and how I've kind of carried that with me at times and, and created this story within me about, you know, being just, I don't know, a sad songwriter. Um, and I'm going to share how this has changed over the years and how I've become much more comfortable embracing my own spirit of longing when it comes to the music I make um, and also the things that I, I love to dive into. Um, the stuff that other people makes make. Um, and yeah, I do that in the hope that it encourages you if you find yourself in similar positions um, to sort of work out what to do with that and, and you know, what you're allowed to say no to and what you're allowed to say yes to. Um, there's a lot of judgment when it comes to this stuff, you know, and Susan Cain talks about it um, early on, like feeling judged for enjoying listening to, I think it's that Adagio um, in, uh, in G minor in, in college and people sort of almost finding it something worth belittling or I think people, I think people find that kind of thing a bit threatening in some ways as well. So yeah, we'll, we'll have a little chat about that over on Patreon. Go to patreon.com forward slash Andy Mort. Um, I'll see some of you there. The rest of you, I will speak to again very soon. So yeah, just remember, no matter how it feels or what people say, gentleness is rebellion and gentleness is always an option. Just one more thing quickly before we finish. Because you're listening to this, I imagine you are a reflective person with a caring, creative and compassionate spirit. And I want to just quickly tell you about The Haven, which is a virtual village for quietly creative misfits just like you. Whether you're looking to build lasting friendships with other gently unconventional people or you simply need some respite from the world's noise right now, I've built The Haven for you. With its cafe, theatre, library and fireside, it's a calm bubble of support and encouragement for gentle rebels. It's currently the autumn season in the membership and we're looking at the themes of change, belonging and serenity during September, October and November. Through our conversations in the community as well as resources like the private podcast feed, videos, interviews and short courses, we dive into these themes and ask how we can build healthier, happier and more connected lives in sync with our natural gentle rhythms. Perhaps you know intuitively that there's so much more within you waiting to burst into life, but maybe you don't quite know where to start or how to bring it out in a way that feels good to you. Well, I'd love to welcome you in and show you around The Haven. You can learn more at the-haven.co or you'll find a link in the description for this episode. Take care. Bye-bye.